Growing up, I was sure that I knew the difference between right and wrong, black and white, the moral lines we tread every day. But as the hours go by in this room, with each story becoming more and more of a freak show, I start to understand the purpose of this game. Judgment. We aren't here to do the right thing. Terrible people often don't. We are here to pass judgment on this twisted little game show that they've trapped us in. It was dark, not but one flickering light bulb and the grunge on our metal chairs. Comfort didn't matter. And as we gathered around the table, we laid our eyes on the arbiter of our escape. There lay a revolver, Smith & Wesson, 45, the signature weapon of the Wild West. Each of us had been given a letter before being brought here and were asked to read it once we had arrived. Against our will, we were brought here. The last thing I remember before this was visiting the local cafe. My mornings always consisted of the usual black coffee, a sandwich, and a long ride to work. Life was mundane. Life was average, and I greeted it with as little effort as I could. The word chosen had meant nothing to me until the day I was taken. A sack placed over my head, fatigue soon followed, and I was not able to resist. And then I woke up here, laying on the ground in a place that was filled with rot and decay. I notice a sign on the wall. Leaning over, I inspect it. Welcome, sir, madam. You have been chosen for an important task today. You must all sit at this table and talk and understand one another. You will each share your deepest sins, your deepest desires, and your darkest secrets. We hope that you will come to understand each other by the end of this game. The rules are simple. Once your stories have been shared, you will each have to decide who it is that deserves to die. All of you must agree, including the person who will die. Failure to follow the rules will mean death for all of you. Happy talking. Kind regards. XOXO. Reading this, I couldn't help but start to panic. The anxiety was enough to force my lunch out from earlier. The lady who had come in with us began shrieking for help. Her wails echoing in this. A small room, piercing even the tightest of corners as she begged and pleaded for her life. Help us, she repeated over and over until her lungs began to crumble under the pressure. One of the guys had trouble breathing. I suspected at first that he too had begun to feel anxious and that he was going to begin hyperventilating. He reached into his pocket and brought out an inhaler. His hands were shaking. He couldn't bring himself under control, but had managed to take his medication without a fuss. The final guy was calm. He simply went to the table, lit his cigarette and smoked as if nothing was going on. He looked at the girl. Pipe down, you aren't getting anywhere by screaming. His voice, you could hear the tar coming from his throat. He looked at the asthmatic. Would you like one? He said jokingly, as if to make a mockery of his condition. It took us a couple of hours to realise the kind of situation we were in. We were ensconced in a small, empty room where a rusted metal door blocked our escape. The door had a flap where we had initially attempted to use in order to call for help, but to no avail. 
We each lost hope, realising that we would all remain until we either starved to death or lost our sanity just enough to kill one another. The man with the cigarettes finally approached us. We ought to do as it says, he said. If we talk, maybe whoever brought us here will pity us enough to let us all go. Naivety. Not what I expected from a man in his condition. His beard was overgrown, scruffed and unkempt. His hair had seen better days, and his face had aged beyond his years. A tough life? Unhealthy life? Who knew? His face is cracked like the desert, like he could crumble at any moment. The look of him repulses me, but I can't look away, I think to myself. With that in mind, he wasn't necessarily wrong. At least three of us would make it out of this if we just followed the rules. The lady and the asthmatic both agreed to what he said, and so we each took a place at the table, our eyes all locked onto the revolver. I had anticipated that one of us may just deviate, grab the revolver for themselves, and take out their frustrations either on themselves or the others. Images of death entered my mind, the idea that soon I may have to pull the trigger on one of these sorry bastards. It was not a ringing endorsement. I begin to shudder as I take my seat. My heart pounds, what I wouldn't give for a shot of whiskey. I sit across from the woman, her hair long, flowing, brunette. Mild makeup covers her face, an outfit stitched together, jeans, a sweater, cotton. Her lips are full, but devoid of any colour. She lacks any form of vibrancy. To my right, the asthmatic, the most well-dressed of the group, the kind you can imagine having been the nerd in high school. He worked hard to get his current spot in life. A three-piece suit, Armani. He wears those thick frame glasses that scream intelligence and his face is narrow. Long face, isn't there a joke about that? We sit around the table, Silence fills the room as we try to figure out who should go first. Whoever has us here has a twisted sense of humour, asking four total strangers to be intimately open with one another. The smoker has an idea. I'll cut some of my cigarettes. Short, medium, large. We each draw from it. We each confess in order of smallest to largest. Sounds good on a surface level, but the winded one is hesitant. Convinced it won't be fair. The woman twitches, anxious, exclaims, Let's just get this over with. We each draw a moment of silence. The asthmatic draws the smallest. I guess he is the first to go. Drawing his breath, he pulls out his inhaler, takes a swig. Holding his breath for ten seconds, he exhales. Where do I start? How about your name? I said. My name? My name is good. He jitters and shakes. He isn't ready to go first. You would think a man like him would be used to it. He seems like he gives presentations all the time. But this? Hard? Come on. My name is Kurt. Townsman! He gasps for air. Appearing as though he's about to pass out, he continues on. I work in the industrial district nearby. The company I work for signs contracts with other businesses in order to provide their staff with telecommunications equipment. 
we mostly cater to other smaller or larger businesses depending on size, scope and requirements and we are open to expanding in other The Woman Snaps. We aren't here to hear you talk about work. Don't you understand the situation we are in? One of us is going to die. And here you are trying to pitch us your stupid phone lines? Do you mind? Seriously. Kurt's head begins to droop. Noticing that she is tense, he proceeds to stop with his salesman antics and move on to more serious matters. And... What do you want me to say exactly? I have done nothing wrong in my life. I mean, look at me. I am dressed this way for a reason. Do you think that suits like this come cheap? I worked and worked for what I have now. And you want me to say I deserve to die? Are you serious? The situation escalates, but the smoker is quick to defuse the situation. Let's just calm down. I admit the situation is a little crazy, but we aren't going to get anywhere by panicking. We just have to follow the rules, do as they say. We may escape. Naive, yet again. I admit though, it was endearing that he managed to stay so hopeful. So let's just all sit down. Let's talk about things. Silence fills the room yet again. Everyone is hesitant to continue speaking. Kurt begins to speak yet again, this time in a lower, more subdued tone of voice. When I was younger, I was infatuated with the idea of candy. Day in and day out, it was all I would think about. The taste of sugar as it dissolved on my tongue and the many different varieties that confectioneries would make. When my friends would go out, we would pay a visit to the corner store often, and drain our pocket money on these sweets. I always had a pretty large allowance, and so I was the one buying all the best candy, all the best chocolates, all the best everything. What was he trying to infer here? One day, my father was fired from his job, His salary was gone and he couldn't find any work for quite some time. My mother was upset, but not as much as I was. My sweets, they were gone. I couldn't buy anything expensive or luxurious anymore. Is he serious? I became more and more desperate for the feeling of expensive sugars. I started out by asking my friends to buy them for me. They weren't too happy when they found out the cheapest I would eat was $5 when they were buying candy for a fifth of that. Rarely did they ever listen to me. They would never ever buy it unless I begged and pleaded. Is he really serious? One day, in my desperation, I decided I had had enough. Unhappy with these circumstances, I decided that it was time to take matters into my own hands. I grabbed the largest bag that I could and I booked it from the store while no one was looking. I emptied the candy trays, I needed my fix, and I got it one way or another. We all paused for a moment. We let the story sink in and we all had the same dumbfounded look on our faces. What was this guy on about? You aren't serious, are you? The smoker says. You honestly think you are here? over some candy bars you stole as a kid? 
We were all a little angry. A man painting himself as completely innocent? Obviously, none of us were. But this guy was just ridiculous. Clearly, at this point, he didn't switch off his salesman routine. The lady was especially annoyed. After the fight they just got into, he had the nerve to keep up the act of being this innocent, hard-working businessman. Cut the bullshit, she says. Just fucking cut it. He continued to insist this was the case, and he wouldn't lean away from it either. Taking his inhaler, yet again, he proceeded to remain quiet for now. He looked away from the rest of us, yet he had a smile on his face, as if to say he was brave in sharing this just now. As it happens, the smoker was next. Seemingly the most honest of us, he seemed as though he was primed to tell us exactly what he did that led him here. He removes another cigarette from his almost empty pack, lights it, he inhales, as if intentional. His exhales go in the direction of the asthmatic, as if he was sending a fuck you his way. Greg Colton, that's my name, not the kind of name I was expecting. The sorts of events that led me here were somewhat messy. So I guess I ought to start at the beginning. It was my goal in life to settle down with the right person, a woman. Unfortunately, I wasn't very loved by many and on the off chance I had been fortunate in this case, the ending was always the same. They had lost interest in me, interest in my love, would dissolve as quickly as it appeared. A sob story? Really? The day that changed was when I met her, Maria, the love of my life. I couldn't believe my eyes the day I saw her, the perfect vision of what I wanted in life, the very same I had dreamed of since the start of my journey. If you had dreamt up your idea of a perfect woman, I do not think it would come close to what I was seeing. In my heart, I knew she was the one. I had expected it to be another failure, but I was in shock when she actually reciprocated, saying yes to my advances and wanting to take things further at the same pace as me. The lady's heart was melting. You could tell she was suddenly admirer of his, falling deeply into his story and feeling what he felt. She expressed more of a desire to hear his story than she did Kurt's. One day, we finally did it. We got married, the house of our dreams was ours, and we got ready to start a happy family. I did all the groundwork, I painted the house magnolia as she requested, got paintings hung up by her favourite artists, and furnished it with all the different chairs and tables she had pointed out when we went out. A year passed in our perfect home, and one day she pukes. Not knowing what it is, we rushed to the hospital, and we received the best news of our life. My Maria was pregnant. A baby boy would soon come into this world. We made him together. Kurt looks on in disbelief. I shared the scepticism, but it was kind of rich coming from him since he just blatantly lied to all of our faces. Nine months later, baby Greg was born. She decided that she wanted to be reminded of the man she loved most in the world when looking down at him. And that person was me. My heart sank. If I hadn't loved her enough already, 
I only fell even deeper. She was perfect and together we made this perfect child. I wanted nothing more than to raise this family and make it the best. She was falling more for his words, but something didn't seem right here. If everything was so perfect in his world, then what on earth could he be here for? Sure, he was a little straightforward, but all in all, this story painted him in a positive light. A month later though, things began to go wrong. At first, Maria would ignore the baby's cries, only reacting as the baby became increasingly rampant. Her attitude towards the child seemed to lose the spark it had at first. She would never play with him, only encouraging him to go to sleep and providing only what was necessary as to reduce the time she spent with him. She would lay awake at night a fair bit, ignoring the child's pleas for help. And when the child needed his mother, she would tell me to take over. I didn't mind this. I loved Greg with all of my heart, but it upset me seeing that she wanted nothing to do with him. One day, I come home from work and there is nothing but silence. I assume at first that both Maria and the baby have gone to sleep, and so I try to be as quiet as possible myself. I sneak my way into the living room, ready to watch some TV, and what I see is... Maria. And the baby. The TV was on, but muted. The silence was deafening. I call out to Maria, but she doesn't respond. Seemingly catatonic, I look at the baby, and something is... off. Greg puts his head in his hands, and he begins to sob. We all seemed to know what happened, but none of us wanted to admit it. None of us wanted to think about it. He wasn't breathing. Maria was holding our child in her arms, staring down, but she wasn't shocked. She was smiling. The smallest of grins are on her face, and she almost seems relieved. Unresponsive, yet relieved. I shout out to her, telling her our baby isn't breathing and she just doesn't respond. The smile remains on her face as I hurriedly dial for emergency services. They arrive on the scene but they were already too late. There was no way for them to know how long he had been gone for and so any efforts to bring him back may have been in vain. They leave. The baby is taken to, and I start to cry hysterically. But Maria, she seems to only have this smile on her face, almost permanently. She gets up and starts doing her normal routine, cooking, cleaning, as though nothing happened. All the while, she has this damn smile on her face. Did she do it? I shout out all my frustrations at her, but all she can do in return is smile. She refuses to take notice of any of my emotions. Days of this same routine pass, I blame her for not doing anything to help, for being so frozen and static, negligent. She continues to smile as if nothing happened. My frustrations begin to grow as she continues her act. And finally, finally what? I am certain it was her who let him die and she did so on purpose. 
My pent up frustrations now have nowhere else to go except straight at her. I walk into the kitchen and I find her cooking as she normally does. Knife in her hand. She is slicing vegetables. I go on over to her and embrace her from behind. Her smile still wouldn't break. As I realize what I am about to do, I whisper in her ear that I was sorry, that I loved her beyond belief, but this is all that I have left and that I cannot forgive her. I I grab the knife and I stab her 12 times. I counted. He starts to cry again. The lady's face sinks and she realizes that the person she was supporting, rooting for, has revealed his true colors. How on earth does he have the audacity to cry? He killed his wife for fuck's sake and he wants us to pity him? How could you? She lets out. How could you do this to her? You're asking me? How could she let our baby die? How did she allow that to happen? How could she still smile about it afterwards? She was crazy. She threw away the life I worked so hard to build. And even as the knife pierced her, that smile wouldn't go away. She drove me crazy. I had no choice. Feeling the pressure, Kurt, in a display of anger, says, But you loved her. But you killed her. But you loved her. But she's dead. She killed our child, Greg exclaims. Everyone questions the why, but I question something else. He killed her, but he clearly wasn't sent to prison. Where is she? I asked. No one caught you. You would be in jail for life for this, regardless of the reason. He looks shocked. His face sinks as he slowly starts to piece together the words to reveal his secret. Where is she? I slam my hand on the table. My thoughts are the same as theirs. Multiple locations, he starts. Her body would be found if I didn't act quick enough, and I wasn't going to jail over her. I loved her, but I wasn't willing to die for her. I take her into the garage, and I start to do some... DIY. No one would ever find her if I could hide her well enough, and I could pass it off as her running away, leaving forever. After all, our child just died. People do crazy things when they are grieving. I carved into her skin, making equal parts to disperse across a few towns. I shove each piece into a bag and am sure to bury them in random areas around my town. The fact that she is dispersed so randomly means that there will be no clear link between the locations. I write a letter, one that I pretend to find the next morning, and I call my friends to let them know about it. They feel sad for me, saying things like, I'm sorry Greg, she will come back someday. I become reclusive. I need to prove I am sad, that this has me depressed. We all look on personally disgusted by the situation. You men, you all repulse me, the lady says. You all think women are here to please you, to make you happy. Didn't you ever stop to think about how she must be feeling? Greg falls silent and sobs into his hands. He seems to regret his decision, but 
It's hard for me to buy his pious act after what he just said. Jolting up as if a massive weight has just been lifted from his shoulder, Greg starts to say, That was relieving, but maybe we should continue. We don't want to be stuck here forever. Silence fills the room again. The wailing echoes of Greg's story continue to ring around us. Preparing herself for her chance to tell her story, the lady gears up. Her breath is heavy and she holds her head in her hand. Her eyes start to bulge, as if to exemplify the trauma she is about to unload onto us. Her breathing continues faster and faster, but as her voice starts to croak, thump, something fell through the door flap. It looked like something had been posted through. Readily, we all rushed to the door, but I make it there first to grab the package. Selfishly, I think it's some kind of get out of here card, but I could not have been more wrong about that. I open the parcel and inside, a single sheet of paper. A single sentence is written. Kurt is dishonest. Ask him about high school. We knew that he had to be lying, but whoever posted this, how could they have known? We all turn back and lock our eyes onto Kurt, his nerves on full display. What? I have been open. I followed the rules to the letter. I told you what I did. You're going to believe a madman over me? You're a stranger too, says the lady. None of us have any reason to trust each other. Our eyes all move to Greg again. Kurt sits back down, huffing and puffing. He turns around to the rest of us, but he refuses to concede to the point. His stance is defensive, his hands clenched, he is ready for a confrontation. But remembering Greg's story seems to calm him down. I don't think he is ready for a fight with a killer in the room. We all gather around the table and wait patiently for Kurt to spill his secrets. What happened in high school, Kurt? I ask calmly. Kurt hangs his head in shame, but he slowly begins to divulge his secrets. He remembers the rules, stating that we all will die if we do not tell our deepest, darkest secret. In high school, I was the resident nerd. Growing up, I was taught that intellect was something to be very proud of, that the pursuit of it made us good. I felt good when I got good grades, when I aced my tests, when my schoolwork was praised by the teachers, but my peers felt otherwise. We all huddle around him, ready for it this time. The other kids would frequently mob me. I came home some days with a limp. Bruises filled my body and the little self-esteem I had was constantly crushed. My days back then were the worst I could ever imagine. I never fought back, being outnumbered. I let the other kids push me to the ground and beat me to a pulp. Eventually, I came to expect the beatings. It was no longer the shock to my system that it used to be. The bruising became second nature and a part of my high school life. The biggest kid, named Paul, led the charges against me. Kurt, at this point, begins to fall more and more silent, but wakes up when he realises he needs to continue the story. Paul was a big guy, the most popular in school. Any girl he wanted, he would get. And any team he wanted to be a part of, he excelled at it. He seemed perfect, but he never seemed to think it was enough. 
I always thought he felt some frustrations that he took out on me, but it was never justified. Sean was my best friend, the one person in the school who supported me during these years. He knew very little about what was going on, knowing only that I would be bruised from time to time. Any chance we got, we studied together, and I would help him with his homework quite often. The study centre was where we chose to hang out mostly, and was the only place I felt safe, but I could never stay there forever. One day, the beatings became so bad that I have to stay at home for a week. I couldn't keep food down, my stomach was always hurting, water didn't seem appealing at all. My dad kept saying I needed to fight back, but at no point even remotely thought about moving me from that school. Maybe we couldn't afford it, but on the inside I had resented him. I resented him for all of this. My relationship with him would deteriorate to a point where we no longer speak, even now. He seemed to grow sadder and sadder as the story went on, his facial expression slowly becoming more and more devoid of anything as he continued on. I come back to school and nothing has changed. In fact, it is somehow worse. I summon up my courage to take the beatings again, but this time something is different. A new face has entered the arena. Sean is now part of the crowd and one of the leaders of the beatings. His feels the worst. He aims for my face, for my chest, all of the places that were affected just yesterday. He punches me relentlessly, holding very little back and unable to contain his violent desires. For the first time in a long time, I feel sad. I feel like I have lost something really important. I keep asking why. Why is he doing this? And he just repeats the same thing. I needed help. You weren't there. I assume he means the homework, and his grades suffered because of it. Holding nothing back, he starts to tell me the truth about how he felt about me this whole time. That I was nothing more than a tool to keep his grades up. That I have outgrown my purpose, and from now on, I was alone. That hurt more than anything. I start to feel bad for the guy. He is visibly traumatised about the whole ordeal. But we know that this isn't going to end like we hope it will. No happy endings here. I feel angry for the first time and I can't let this go. I go home and I start to plan my way out of this. How can I get away from all of this? I keep asking myself the same question, but the same feeling of rage continues to build as I now want revenge for the first time in my life. My father is a hunter by trade. He hunts and sells meat for a living. He has a storage cabinet filled with guns. The rifle would have been perfect, but way too obvious. But then I start to think that not only do I need to get my revenge, but I need to make it so that it could never be spoken about ever again. I decide on the best way to do this, but nothing in my mind sounds better than to silence my recipient of my revenge. I grab my father's pistol and prepare myself to go over to Sean's house. My plan is simple. Go over to his house, call him out under the pretense of trying to make amends with a bundle of homework papers, and then I take my revenge. I pack my things and I make my way there. 
We all look at the revolver on the table and realise the kind of danger we might be in. I go to his house and I call him out. I say to meet me at the park nearby, which is empty at this time of night. The promise of fresh homework to leech off of motivates him just enough to make his way there. The cicadas are ringing in my ear as I start to become nervous. He comes over and he insults me at first. Finally realise your role in my world, you prick? I gather all my courage as the cicadas become louder and louder and louder. Sean walks slowly towards me, his fists clenched. He is ready to take the papers from me by force, despite the fact that I have promised him that I will give him the papers without a fuss. I draw three shots straight in his left kneecap. The agony in his screams ring in the night as I look on both in shock and in ecstasy. I wonder if I should shoot some more. I have the power right now and I am able to take his life as quickly as I want to, but I don't want him dead. I want him silent. I want him never ever to be able to bully me again. He betrayed me, the one person I trusted in my whole entire life. He will learn now that betraying me was the wrong move. I reach into my bag and start to enact the second part of my plan. Charcoal. A lighter. I begin to light the coal that I will be using for the second part of this whole ordeal. After this, I can go home. I light the coal enough so as to be lit and ready to burn anything that it touches. Sean begins to plead. His apologies ring hollow after what he has done and all I can hear in the back of my mind is that he betrayed my trust. I despise him. He deserves this more than anyone. The deepest pits of hell are reserved for people like him. He cries. He screams. But the park is empty. No one is coming. He can try as much as he likes, but is not going to get away with this. I force open his mouth. I drop the coal in and I force his mouth shut, forcing him to swallow the small, lit chunk of coal, just enough to burn the ever-living shit out of his throat. Soon, what once was screams is now hollow grunts. He tries so hard to call for help but his throat becomes so damaged that sound can no longer be heard. He starts to realise the situation, as I can't help but crack a smile. This is perfect. He will live, but he will never be able to tell anyone what happened, no matter what. Satisfied with what I have done, I pack my things and I leave him with some parting words. I am glad we met, Sean. And I make my way back home. I am now content happy with what has happened. My aggression slowly starts to dissolve. This was catharsis at its finest. The next day, at school, we are told that Sean will never come back to this school ever again, stating that some unforeseen circumstances has caused him to leave and never come back. But what no one knows, I was that circumstance. We began to cower at the mere thought of interacting with this man. He looked so innocent, nerdy and well put together on a surface level, but on the inside he was harbouring a side of him that could be triggered at a moment's notice. The lady, who had previously been fearless when confronting him, had begun to realise that ticking him off may have been a mistake. 
She felt like a target to him, and, to be honest, so did Greg and I. Why are you all staring at me? He asked. You all realise that I am not the only guilty party here, right? He was right, but even so, this Sean fella sounded like he meant something to him. So, to think he would turn the tables on him at the drop of a dime? We couldn't help but shudder. The tension levels in the room began to rise. What once was silence due to awkwardness soon turned into a self-defence situation. Realising still that our lives were on the line, the lady soon began to work up some courage to share her story. I don't know where I should begin, she starts, but I suppose my name will do. I could only imagine the kind of atrocities she may have committed. My name is Jessica Larnell. I haven't done anything I would define as wrong. However, you clearly did if you were here, Kurt utters. She stammers for a moment, but accepting his words, she continues. My story starts in college. I had just been accepted and I was excited to finally be able to make friends and study literature like I always wanted to. I was always something of a bookworm. I found comfort in fantasy and in the romances that would happen deep on those worlds. That explained why she was so swayed by Greg's words earlier. A romantic. I wouldn't have pegged her for something like that based on the sort of attitude she puts out though. I always hated having to interact with men. I was raised to believe that most were just after one thing. A good body and a girl that would put out. At parties, I would actively go out of my way to be the wallflower of the group, burying my nose deep into a book whilst everyone had a good time. At the time, I was deep into the romance genre and, ironically, I had aspired to write my own someday. Literary arts and all that jazz. She stops for a moment and turns her head towards Greg. Could I have one of your cigarettes, please? Greg politely hands her the pack so that she can remove one by herself. Planting one between her lips, she proceeds to light it, inhaling deeply as she moved to the next phase of her story. I had frequently attended literature clubs and retreats to further indulge in my own hobbies, and I had really enjoyed them. Socialising with fellow literature buffs, being able to bounce my own thoughts and ideas off them, I was pleased with what I was able to do and contribute to these events, including some of my own short stories and even some poetry. In the months that passed, I had been given the opportunity to finally be able to attend an event where a famous author would be present. I was excited to meet him, having read almost every book he had written. I was a fan of his work and I jumped at the chance to be able to meet him to thank him for his literary contributions, and I have a chance to speak to him about what I wanted to do in the future. With my goal in mind, I was pleased to discover that the college was endorsing the trip, offering students a subsidised package so as to be able to afford all the amenities necessary on the trip. I was buzzing with excitement. I could hardly contain myself on the flight, I made a point to gather some select books I thought were the best he had ever written. I read the hell out of them on that flight over, taking as many notes as I could as I prepared myself for an in-depth discussion with him about literary theories. 
I had thought that Kurt was the nerd of the group. I think this is the clearest cut case of looks can be deceiving. When I arrived, the event had already started and any excitement I had kept contained was released almost immediately. I scurried over to every stall I could see, wide-eyed at the various literary displays that were being showcased, from live readings to discussion hubs, and I was enthralled. I gradually managed to set aside my excitement for these things, because I wanted to go over to the main event. I hurried from one side of the event to the other, bumping into god knows how many people, tripping over and constantly having to apologise at every opportunity. The high heels didn't help at all. I mean, who was I trying to impress anyway? I made it to the stall, where I finally managed to lay eyes on him. Elijah Samuels, writer extraordinaire. He was every bit as intoxicating to look at as he was to read about. His every expression holding a sense of intensity, but melancholic at the same time. He was a joy to look at, and the only way this could be better is if I managed to utter even a hello. To hear his voice would be a dream come true, something I could remember as a narration for when I picked up another of his stories. She sounded like she was infatuated by the guy, and for a girl who showed so much disgust for us men earlier, she was really speaking highly of this man. I could see Kurt becoming more frustrated by her descriptions. Must have reminded him of Paul on some level. I hurried over to my spot in line number five, and I swear this was the longest wait of my life. I've never ever felt trepidation such as this, the anxious blood flowing through my veins as I finally made it to the front of the line. And there he was, in all his glory. I barely managed to let out a hello, and when I did, I squeaked. Your name, young lady? Elijah asked. He wanted to know my name. I was screaming on the inside. Would he remember me, though? I promptly replied with my full name. Jessica Larnell! I exclaimed it. He was visibly amused, whilst I sat there embarrassed. I started word vomiting all about how much he inspired me to write my own short stories, citing the books that I had used as inspiration when laying out my narrative process, citing the characters in his books that inspired the ones in my own story. Before I could finish, he stopped me. Do you have one of these stories with you? He calmly queried. I squealed on the inside again. An author like him? Reading my stories? What if he liked it? What if he didn't? I expected disappointment most of all, but I never could have prepared myself for what came next. I am thinking that this has the potential to be something spectacular, and I think that perhaps you would benefit from being able to work alongside another writer to collaborate on this premise much further. You may not know this, Jessica, but something that I often do is collaborate with budding authors such as yourself in order to further their dreams. With that in mind, I would love if you could give me a way to contact you and maybe we could meet up and go over this sometime. My heart was pounding. He liked my story. A famed author liked my story. My story. 
This was everything I could ever want and I walked away after giving him my mobile number. I immediately sent a text to my friends who were all so excited to hear that I had this opportunity. I eagerly went back to the room I was staying in, anticipating that he would call at any minute to arrange a meeting to finally write together. A day passed and the call finally came. Elijah, his deep, intoxicating voice was on the other line. Well, hello there, Jessica. I am just following up on the offer I'd made yesterday. If you'd like, uh, you can meet me where I am currently staying. I have rented out a house. I find that having my very own space helps when trying to gain inspiration. I will text you the address. I will be available after one hour, so don't turn up too early. Yes, I thought, but playing it off cool, I said, Okay, Elijah, I will see you soon. I quickly got dressed and I made my way there. I was finally going to achieve a dream of mine and nothing at all was going to stop me. I grabbed my things and called a cab to take me there as soon as possible. The front door was as extravagant and as gothic as I ever imagined. The gothic designs, the intensity of the gargoyles on the door, and the handle. It was so cool, I could not believe I was staring at the home of such an amazing man. I knock, and he opens the door. There, in his three-piece suit, he greets me in the politest, the most suave and intense way possible. I make my way inside, and he asks me to take a seat in the study. He has this large leather sofa. No doubt it was expensive. The rental agency don't give this sort of stuff to anyone, but he was a special case. Make yourself comfortable. I will go get us some refreshments. When I am back, we will go over your story. What a gentleman, ready to serve me at a moment's notice, but I knew inside it was just because he didn't want me breaking anything in this house. He hurries back and sits down on the sofa next to me. I get out all of my writing materials and he starts to talk about the story and what he liked. It was enthralling to be able to hear him talk about my story with such excitement. I have to say, I find you very interesting. These writings seem to display a deep thought process and one that I could very much help endorse. He found me interesting. I wanted to hear him talk about it more, but... Things changed really quickly. His suave demeanour changed just as quickly as it appeared, as he began to talk about other things. I soon began to understand why it was that Jessica was so abrasive towards us. As she begins to explain further, her hatred becomes ever more clear. He gradually begins to make his true intentions known to me. You know, Jessica, he takes a sip of his drink, Talent such as yours isn't usually noticed by the mass audience, and that is quite a shame because I could help you get noticed, but I would of course want something in return. His hand slowly running up my arm, he makes his way to my dress strap and lowers it ever so slightly. He makes it clear now that this entire visit is nothing to do with business. He wanted more out of me than I wanted to give. I become less and less comfortable. And before I know it, he is slowly moving closer to me, 
his lips primed and ready for mine, but I didn't want this. I push him away with all of my force. I jolt upwards, exclaiming that I have to leave, but he doesn't take no for an answer. With all of his force, he grabs my arm and he throws me onto the sofa. If you aren't going to cooperate, then I will just take what I want, he shouts at me, his cool demeanour now gone. I scream and I cry for help, but in this empty house, nobody can hear me. There are no neighbouring homes, there are no house staff, just his eyes defiling my body as he takes what he called me here for. He enters and I fall silent. I cannot breathe, I cannot think. He takes and takes and I just lay there, wanting all of this to be over. He keeps going and going, his grunts becoming louder and louder his sweat dripping onto my face as I feel nothing but anguish and disgust. I want this to be over. I want to go home. I want to leave this place behind and forget that any of this happened. But what should have lasted no time begins to feel like hours. When he is done, he gets up. Your writings were not great. They were mediocre at best. But I will make them well known, as I promised. He walks into the next room and I don't see him for the remainder of my time in the house. I get up and I am numb from all of this and all I feel inside myself is pain and regret. I should have never come here, I kept thinking. My mum was right about men, I say to myself. Her words echo in my mind like a mantra being repeated over and over. Anger swells and I have nowhere to put it. I wanted this nightmare to end, but the only way it could is if I could put an end to his image in my mind. I reach into my bag, I grab my cigarettes and my lighter. I try to take an inhale, but I can't. I drop it onto the carpet and I cry into my hands. I can't even look at myself right now. My friends text me, asking how the visit went. They show excitement, but I don't want to reply. I don't want to tell them everything, and so I ignore what they say. But in the minutes that followed, a small cluster of flames begin to form on the carpet. The right thing to do here would be to call the fire department, call for Elijah and get him out of there. The right thing to do would have been to save his life, to let the house burn. The flames were still small, I could have put them out. I hear Elijah switch on the shower and I consider the one option that would be put this all to bed instead of warning him, instead of doing the right thing. I walk out of the house as the flames begin to build around me. I make my way to the door and as I do, I look back and I see that the room where he did this has now been immersed in flames and I now know that soon the house will follow suit. I leave the house and walk away from it. I leave that chapter of my life behind and I focus on the future. Calling a taxi, I make my way back to the room. I reach and all I want to do is go to sleep. But I couldn't sleep after all of this. Staying awake for the whole night in the early hours of the morning, I switch on the television to find that there is breaking news. Famed author Elijah Samuels appears to have died in a fire in the house he is renting. The company who rented it out to him 
is currently being investigated for negligence, as it is currently believed that faulty piping may have been responsible for the fire. Fans have taken to Twitter to express their disbelief, messages of hope and of inspiration. For me, this wasn't hopeful or inspiring. Nobody knew him at all, knew what he could do, knew what he did. I needed this more than anyone in the world, and no one would ever know that I had done this. No one. The company would be investigated, and there were no traces of my presence there. I could put this chapter behind me, but I hate all men now. You are all disgusting, revolting, awful human beings, and taking you away from my life would be the best thing to ever happen to me. She left a man to die, and whilst she had all the reason in the world to hate him, allowed him to burn alive. Images of a man pleading and screaming for an escape as he gasped for air? The monoxide slowly filling his lungs? Does she not see that herself? You let him die like that? Kurt asked. You just left him behind? Rich coming from you, isn't it? She replies. Kurt reverts to his shy demeanor as slowly everyone begins to feel more and more ill at ease. Our eyes are no longer meeting like they were at first, as the realization of being surrounded by killers starts to sink into our minds. We need to continue, Greg utters. We need to finish this sick game. That leaves you silent but deadly, Kurt jokingly says. What could you have done, I wonder? Jessica asks. I admit, I am not eager to share my story, but I have to. Either one of us die, or all of us die, and I don't know that I was willing to die for these people, or for the sake of a secret. I ask Greg for a cigarette, so as to calm my nerves for the revelations to come, and I choose to continue. Neil Michelson, that is my name, and my story starts like this. Trepidation consumes my mind as I start to spill my story. My story starts with my childhood. Growing up, I loved a lot of things, mainly art and technology. These were interests I had in fact inherited from my brother, a driving influence in my life for some time. As the younger brother, I looked up to him greatly. I wanted to be like him, to be as cool as he was, to be something similar to him. I did all I could to align my interests with his. I watched all of the shows he did and played all the games he did. I wanted that for myself. He talked a lot about history and technology, and in doing so, my interests in these subjects only grew. Every day when I had done my homework, my chores, I ran to the TV so I could catch a glimpse of what he was watching. My eyes glued to the television as he explained what was going on. As I grew up, I began to develop on my own, but on the inside, I still sought to know what he knew about everything. In my early teens, he and I started going to the park to play some football or cycling. Anything like that would be the activity of choice. Eventually, my cousin would also join and he would participate in these activities with us. They were fun. We had a great time. I was no older than 12 when we started doing this and I remember having fun during the earlier segments of these days. My cousin and my brother were eight and nine years older than me respectively and so I had trouble keeping up but I tried my damnedest to, if only to seem tougher to them. I reached the age of 13, but we still kept going out to the park. Things began to change on our visits there though. 
Where fun was the main objective, they had begun to act differently, with activities centred around pushing my physical limits, be they cardio or anaerobic. I struggled a lot, and I couldn't keep up. I would frequently fall to the ground due to the amount of pressure that they had put me under, and I couldn't handle it. My legs weakened, my body tired. My brother didn't like this. Expecting better from me, he would urge me to get up initially, but this devolved into a ritual where instead of allowing me to catch my breath, he would instead subject me to something a lot worse. The first time it happened, I had fallen down after my knees began to hurt. I remember gasping for air and begging my brother to give me some water, the bottles he always carried in his bag. Everyone starts to turn their gazes hard on me, and suddenly it feels as though knives are piercing through me. I gulp as I begin to elaborate. My brother, eight years older than me, threw his hardest punch straight at my chest. I had already run out of breath, but hitting me straight in the chest only made the struggle to breathe even harder. What's the matter? Can't keep up with us? This is what he said, and rather than try to pick me up, he instead continued to punch me in the chest and in the stomach, with each one gradually feeling heavier and heavier as each one landed. The bruises began to develop as I struggled to get up. People saw this happen in public, but they wouldn't take notice. They simply walked on about their day as if this was a normal thing to happen. As I gradually managed to get back on my feet, I felt too weakened to try and fight back. As we made our way home, I ran straight up to my room and gasped for more air, unable to handle the weight of these punches. My brother and I shared a room and we had always gotten along just fine. But since his change in behaviour, the beating spread to there too. If something happened that he deemed completely out of line, he would swing a punch my way or push me to the ground and kick me in the chest. He was rarely ever light on this, and with every hit I received, I only began to feel physically worse. At the park, things began to progress. I was too afraid to say no to him when he said we should go there again. And so, on our repeated visits, he and my cousin made it a point to make sure I received a beating. Every single day, they would do everything they could to cause me harm, which was something I had tried to mask from my mother. At one point, they aimed only for my leg, kicking me there, punching me there, crushing it under their feet as they could feel my anguish becoming increasingly worse. I screamed in pain, but no one would take notice, least of all them. They would laugh it off. Quit your drama, they would say. We are doing this for you. What did that mean exactly? What purpose could have been served by abusing a 13-year-old? Every single day, as the beatings became worse, they would slowly evolve their tactics to force fear into my body to make life as unbearable as possible. They started out small, playing on my fear of spiders by locking me in a room with one the size of my hand, all the while recording it through the window for their personal archives. The beatings would be something that they would record too, and something they would laugh about frequently. I walk into the room one day to find them both on the sofa, with their cameras connected to the TV. They are watching all of the footage of the abuse that they inflicted on me and laughing hysterically over it. They beckon me over and ask me to sit and watch with them, and I try to laugh it off as awkwardly as I can, but on the inside I am crying. 
as this begins to externalize, my brother slapped me across the head and said, Don't you realize? We did this for you. He laughs harder and harder as the videos start to get worse, and part of me wants to die at that point. Imagine, someone barely in their teens wanting nothing more than to disappear from this world. It sickens me to think that they had made me feel that way. A couple of weeks later, they kidnap me from my room. My mother has gone out to work, as has my father, and they decide that they want to make things worse for me. They tie me up and throw me into the trunk of the smallest car we had in the house. I beg them not to close the trunk, but they don't stop laughing continuously. They drive and they drive, and judging by the speed, I assume that they were on a motorway. They gradually increase speed, and they start to switch lanes as fast as they can while doing it. Me, without any form of seatbelt, I start sliding around in the trunk. Doing so throws my body against all of the hard places of this enclosed space. Sharp objects were in this trunk, and so some of them had hit my skin, causing lacerations, causing bruises. I screamed for help. I begged them to stop doing this as I was in so much pain. My body truly could not take it anymore, but their music was on loud and no doubt they could not hear the cries. Not that they would have done anything about it. My arms are cut. My head is bleeding. My body is bruised and there is a numbness to this pain. To a point where I stop noticing it. I feel the impact. I realize it hurts, but powerless to do anything. I stop screaming. Eventually, I become dazed and I lose all interest in continuing. I black out from the pain. Eventually, I wake up in the back seat of his car. I see the back of their heads as they express how proud they are that they did this, that it was well worth the planning and that this is by far the best thing that they have recorded. I start to cry hysterically, but they take no notice. They look through the rearview mirror and my brother continues to say the very same thing. This was all for you. I don't know what it was about that statement that finally caused me to snap, but I remember blacking out with rage after that. I scream even louder, noticing that my brother is speeding down a residential road, I take my chance. I don't care if I live or die, I just don't want him to exist anymore. Each of their eyes are glued to my face. They notice the tears rolling down my cheeks as I work up the courage to state the next bit. I grabbed my brother with all the strength I had from the back and start to choke him. My cousin, slow to react to this, throws a punch straight at my chest, but my brother begins to swerve off the road. His speeding causes the car to crash into another car on the other side of the road and before long, we all feel the impact. My brother's face hits the steering wheel and my head hits the driver's seat. I black out after that, the impact enough to cause me to pass out. When I finally come to, I am on the side of the road, a man hovering over me, seemingly relieved to see that I am okay, that I woke up. I catch my breath. The man notices I have many cuts and bruises, but assumes that this was a result of the car accident. The car that my brother was driving was on fire, and I soon managed to catch a glimpse of what was inside the car. Although I was saved, my brother was not, and his body slowly begins to burn to ash as I watch the car slowly start to break down from the flames. His face, 
His mouth wide open, his flesh slowly burning and chunks beginning to fall off as his body began to disappear. I look on and I cannot stop watching. He wasn't alive anymore. Could I have done this? I start to question what I have done, but I am no less indifferent to it. For whatever reason, despite the fact that I had caused this whole accident to happen, I felt nothing. Not even scared when seeing his body slowly fall to pieces. A scene from a nightmare, yet I couldn't feel anything towards it. The ambulance arrived on the scene, revealing that I was going to be okay after some routine checkups, but that the accident had rendered my cousin completely paralysed. Someone had managed to get him out, however, his spine was crushed from the accident, affecting his motor and communication skills. It was safe to say that he would not be able to recall the events of this situation in a conversation, as he had effectively been vegetated from the accident. The image of my brother's rotting body continued to haunt me for some days, but the relief I had felt after the daily routines of abuse had finally come to an end had come to outweigh any sense of fear or regret I had begun to feel. I didn't think of him in the light that I used to. I remember him, even now as a man, who could have exerted his superiority over someone much smaller than him. My mother, heartbroken, had her own grieving process where she would remember how poorly he had performed academically and in life, and compared it to my own saying that I am doing a good job of making us proud by hitting the grades I needed to, and that she wishes my brother had the chance to make things right with his, so that he could go on to higher things. She said he watched history documentaries, but was poor at all other aspects of academia, resulting in him not being able to go to college and being denied most jobs he had applied for. She continued on by saying that I should do my best to set my sights higher and to achieve what he couldn't so that he could be proud of me in the future. But she didn't know. My brother clearly resented me for some reason. Why else would he have done all of this to me? I was glad to be rid of him, glad that I would never see his face again. The images of the accident soon became a comfort in my mind, as assurance that I would never ever have to face another event like that again. My story had everyone shaken. The images that would have consumed their minds, I could practically hear their hearts stopping as they began to process the story I had told them. They all gave me an intense look, the revelation seeming to be too much for them. They all soon fell into a panic. I don't want to die! Jessica screams. One of us has to, unfortunately. I repeat this twice. We all look at one another and start to come up with reasons as to why we should be allowed to live, but no amount of justification could possibly convince the other. Self-preservation is a key trait of all people, so there is no doubt in my mind that this would never ever be unanimous. But maybe I could try to make it so. The difference between me and them? They are all still hurt. I am not. Maybe I can use that to my advantage. I would just need to decide who it is that is most hurt by their story. So, how about it? I start. Who is going to be the lucky recipient of this lovely bullet? They all stare at me, phased completely by my joke clearly. Let's all go around, shall we? I continue. Let's all talk about who should die and why. 
They were all so uncomfortable, but they all understood deep down that this was the only way that this would end. There was no way that they could disregard that. The trepidation in each of their bodies was clear. They were shaking, anticipating the next sentence as if it would make or break this whole ordeal. Without further hesitation, I decided to speak my mind. Left down to me? I personally would choose Greg. I start to speak. Greg, do you know the difference between you and the rest of us? No, but I bet you were about to tell me, he replies, full of attitude. You have already told us the reason, and we can see it on your face. You have lost all hope, any tangible reason to live. You say that you had to put on an act, but that was for the scenario you built for your friends. You didn't find it hard because you were already depressed. You are already devoid of any reason to live the moment that knife pierced her skin for the first time. You pass it off like it was necessary, but was it really? You aren't proud of what you've done. You were driven mad like the rest of us. The difference is, in doing so, you have destroyed everything you had, and now you have nothing to go back to. Who on earth would look for you when you are gone? They all jolt backwards. Greg especially is hurt by my words, but he knows it's the truth. Every day he is in an empty house, no visitors, not a single person to say, Hiya honey, how was your day? Devoid of love. It makes the most sense to put a bullet into his sorry ass. Pragmatism rules here. How can you say that? Jessica responds. What on earth gives you the high road here? Nothing at all, I say. But his lack of hope gives me a reason to get out of here. You are sick, Kurt jumps in. You are so sick in the head. How can you sit there and play judge so readily? It's nothing personal, guys. I just want some of us to live instead of letting all of us die. These people, all they can do is stare longingly. They have no idea the gravity of all of this. If you disagree, please state your case. I beckon them to speak their minds. Thump. Something falls through the flap yet again. Another piece of paper? I scurry over to the door to get the parcel. I grab it, open the envelope to reveal its contents. This isn't about who is lonely. It is about who is most guilty. The sin that runs deepest. A grim reminder of how my reasoning doesn't matter. And, no doubt, this was going to be difficult for us to pass judgement on. What exactly is the criteria for guilt? If it is how we feel, then the others definitely have more of that than I do. We sit there for a while in silence. Echoing in the background is each of our stories, and it was time for us to weigh who it was that did the worst. We needed to. How else would we get out of here? Let's start then, I lead with. I stand by what I said, that Greg should be the one to go. But if we are talking about guilty, who did the worst? Then I say Jessica. Jessica jolts up out of her chair. And what gives you the right to judge me? She shouts at the top of her lungs. Ready to throw a punch at me, I stop her in her tracks. You know why? You, unlike the rest of us, had the chance to intervene. The chance to stop 
what it was you were about to do. You said it. The fires were small at first. You could have put them out. You could have saved his life. But you didn't. Unlike us, you didn't act on impulse. You acted on decision. You made your choice then and there. In that moment, that you would leave him to burn alive in his own home. She steps back to think about what I said. Do those images not haunt you? Do you not hear the screams in your mind as he burns to a crisp, begging for help, pleading for a way out? Her head buried into her palms. Kurt looks on as if to pity her. She looks over at him and sees his sympathy. But he... he... I know, Jessica, Kurt said, as if showing humanity for the first time. I do not agree with what Neil said at all. If anyone in this room deserves this bullet, it would be him. Shocked, in fact, I thought Kurt would agree. The most confrontational person here has been Jessica, and Kurt has been the recipient of all of her attitude. But here he was, showing empathy. What on earth was he thinking? I agree with him. Greg supports his choice. You are clearly the worst of us here. What? How? And what makes you say that, I wonder? My defensive stance is taken. You all feel regret. You all know what you did is wrong. You even know in the moment, and here you are, crying, sobbing, trying to get me to feel sorry for you. What gives you the right? At that moment, Kurt snatches the gun from the middle of the table. He pulls back the hammer and aims it straight at me. You need to die, Kurt says reluctantly, his hands shaking and the gun lacking any stability. You don't get it, do you, Kurt? I say to him. You being so willing to pull the trigger already speaks volumes about who it is that deserves this. Kurt looks away, but his hand is still wrapped around the gun. Jessica moves to the corner, begging for safety, begging for her life to be spared by all of us. Her tears begin to flow and the strong facade she tried to keep up starts to break away. Her face contorting into a twisted shape, her now lack of colour is put fully on display. I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. I can't die. I don't want this. I don't want any of this. Please. Please. I want to live. I want to go on. I want to be here in the world. Please. She repeats this over and over. A mantra. Hoping that she will be able to live through these events. But not if I have my way. I cannot approach Kurt right now. But what about Greg? His persona starts to crack, but he hasn't quite broken down just yet. Greg, do I really need to be killed? I try to reason. You and I both know what Kurt did was much worse, yet he is the one holding the gun. He crippled someone for life, all on the name of revenge. Not only that, but the guy was his friend. He could have done this to his bully. It would have made more sense. But he didn't. Instead, he went for the person who showed him any kind of compassion. Greg looks to the floor, pondering on what I said. As Kurt continues to look away from me, I slowly inch forward in the hopes of getting the gun. It's time that I put an end to this twisted game. You don't agree, Kurt? I beckon. 
You don't agree that what you did was awful? You are the worst of us. You even lied to us. I move ever closer to him. You tried to convince us that your obsession with sugar was what led you here. It took someone else to reveal the truth. It took someone else to illuminate your guilt to put a spotlight on all of this. I move even closer, but this time his eyes are focused on me. And so I stop in my tracks before moving any further. You act like this pompous asshole, but in fact, you are the lowest of us. How is it you have the nerve to aim the gun at me? But I, Kurt utters, but I didn't. But nothing, I interrupt. You don't realize how bad this is. What you did? His eyes move away from me as I start to move even closer. Greg, becoming aware of this, starts to say his piece. You killed your brother, he says. Your brother, who you looked up to. If you are going to pull that card on us, then maybe we can pull it on you. What exactly stopped you from telling your mother? We didn't have anyone, but you did. You had your mother. You had your father, no doubt. Why didn't you tell anyone what was happening? Why didn't you put a stop to this like that? Kurt suddenly wakes up from his trance, as does Jessica. Realising Greg's logic, their tear-ridden faces soon dissolve as their confidence begin to rise. Oh, sure, you act like you are level-headed, Greg continues, but deep down you knew. You knew that you could have talked about it with your parents, sought further help or protection from him, and yet you let it continue. You let your brother continue. Kurt and Jessica both look to Greg as the leader of this whole fiasco. He is right, Jessica agrees. What on earth stopped you? They are there to help you. What did you think they would say? Your brother is right? Kurt's hand begins to tighten around the grip of the revolver. Resolve in his eyes as he begins to speak for himself. My father forgot about me. Jessica made a split decision and Greg's family was gone. Yet yours was still there. You knew this, yet you didn't speak up. I stopped moving. What is it with these people? Sure, I could have, but he would have found a way to fight back, and you guys know that. I fire back. Bullshit, Jessica replies. Social services exist. He could have been taken away. You would have never seen him again. Right? Greg looks into my eyes. I don't understand where you get off playing holier than thou, when you are the one who takes comfort in the thought of your brother's corpse. Kurt, hearing this, readily aims the gun. His eyes piercing through me. He is ready to end this. What do I do now? They all agree it should be me. When they are clearly far worse. If you want to shoot me, then fine. But it isn't going to make things better. You will continue to live with this forever, knowing that you took the life of someone more innocent than you are. Would you really be able to? Would you be able to sleep? Bang. The game has ended. You know I have to admit, this didn't go the way I expected it to. Honestly, if anyone was going to die, I thought it would be Greg or Kurt. Neil's body lays on the ground blood trickling from his now contorted face.
the bullet having ripped straight through his skull. Lifeless, he lays on the ground as blood slowly starts to engulf his entire body. In a way, I feel relieved. They all had reasons to die, and with Neil having given his consent, I can't say he broke the rules. Even if it was a self-preservation tactic, the onus is on him for how this played out. Perhaps he was too arrogant to realise how unstable the people around him were, how ready they were to kill him for his crimes. I switch on the speaker, and I have my interpreter at the ready. I have written a speech that would help explain exactly why they were there, and make things now clearer. I have everything recorded, and can now enact the justice that I have been waiting for all these years. They all deserve to rot for what they have done, and I intend to make sure this happens, no matter the cost. My interpreter moves closer to the microphone as he prepares to enact the speech. Hello. Well done. You have all successfully finished the game. You have all proven that you can talk, you can kill, and that you want to survive. Admirable traits, I assure you. However, I bet the question has been burning in your mind. Why you? Why were you chosen? Why have I, a lowly agent of justice, brought you here? It's time you know. They all look up at the camera, as if attempting to figure out exactly what it was that brought them here. I can only imagine that millions of thoughts may have crossed their mind. I couldn't wait to deliver the news, and so I beckoned my interpreter to continue. I come from a very wealthy family. My father, before he had passed, had left all of his assets to me. Luckily, these were very valuable. And if there was one thing I could make sure of, it was that I would never be without money. He was an exceptional man, and I always appreciated how hard he worked to make sure me, my sister, and my mother would go on through life without any desires that couldn't be fulfilled. But he was incredibly serious when it came to academics and so I found myself trying my best to work hard to live up to his expectations. When he died, I worked even harder, as much as I could, and thought that someday I could make something of myself. A close friend of mine, God rest his soul, he would motivate me to move on, even after my accident, that I could make something of myself in this world. I decided then, and there, that I would bring justice to those who wronged me. I could see it in their eyes. The confusion, the doubt, the anxiety. They all sat at their respective chairs, anticipating that I would come in there and kill them myself. But, let's be honest, in my condition I couldn't. This game did that for me. You have all wronged me. Jessica... You hurt my father. You are the very reason he is dead. Elijah Samuels, my hero in this world. You took him away from me without even a second thought. He was brilliant. He cared for us deeply and you allowed him to burn alive in a fire with no regard for his feelings. The screams, 
They must haunt you. They haunt me greatly. Greg, you left out an important detail. Maria's last name, Samuels. You took from me my sister. She was an incredible human being. She supported me even after my accident, made sure I would eat well and snapped me out of my depression and convinced me to move forward. If it hadn't been for her, I would have taken my own life a long time ago. You took that away from me. I cannot forgive you for that. Neil, you took my best friend. You took him away from me for the sake of revenge and you didn't even consider what he may have meant to the others around him. I do not care for what he did to you in the slightest. He and my sister were the very reason I chose to continue living. That bullet? I am glad it pierced your skull. I am glad that your blood is on the ground and that you are bathed in it. You deserved everything that came to you. I regret only that I wasn't able to pull the trigger myself. And now you, Kurt, you don't remember me? It is me, your friend, Sean, Sean Samuels. Do you remember how much I pleaded with you that day to spare me, to give me a chance to make this up to you? I could have lived with the disability, but can you imagine how hard it was for me to go through life not being able to talk about what you had done? I was so afraid, but no longer. You no longer have that power over me, you arrogant son of a bitch. They all fall to the ground. Jessica begins to cry and scream hysterically. Greg begins to cry uncontrollably, showing the first real shred of emotion since he got here. And Kurt? Well, he hyperventilates. His asthma pump is no doubt on its last legs. Just know that I do intend to release you. However, I have recorded all of the footage here and I intend to let the world know what you all did. You will all rot for everything you had done to me. You will all die in a cell or hopefully you will all save the world the trouble of having to find you. It is your choice. I cut off the microphone, proud of this day. I click the button to unlock the door as they begin to weigh whether or not they should leave for fear of what the footage may do to them. And they are right to fear me. Whatever you do in life comes back to haunt you in some way. And I have demonstrated this today. Why hello there, guys, ghouls, and girls. Thank you for tuning in to the latest video. Please show your spooky support by hitting the like button, leaving a comment, and hitting subscribe to catch our next video. Feel free to send through your scary stories using the email address in the description below. Stay, Stay spooky! spooky.